Welcome to Churchpreneur's Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church and theology, hopefully to empower you and your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the greatest man to ever live. I'd like to talk about the ministry and life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a great example uh, for those in, hopefully in the churchpreneur community, um, those listening to this podcast. John the Baptist is a great example of ministry for us. Uh, Jesus said, among those born of a woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus himself said, that John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever live. Now, that's crazy. Um, think about all the biblical characters or all the characters in history. Um, Jesus says John the Baptist was the, those born of a woman, there was not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So he was the greatest man to ever live. So if Jesus thinks he was the greatest man to ever live, then I'm going to stick with it. Um, and I'm going to go with it. Jesus claimed he was the greatest man to ever live. And so uh, here we go. Um, we're going to call him the greatest man to ever live too. So John the Baptist was a really fascinating man. He performed most of his public ministry in the wilderness in the southern part of the Jordan River. He dressed himself in camel's hair and ate locusts and honey. Nice diet. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever eaten. I like honey, um, but I don't think I've ever eaten a locust. I'm not like Bear Grylls, who uh, <laughs> is going for uh, all sorts of uh, uh, bugs and such to survive. Um, that might have been a survival thing. I don't really know. It's not real clear what that is, but uh, this must not have been a very comfortable wardrobe or a very tasty diet. I mean, maybe he dipped the locust in the honey to give it a little flavor. I'm not sure, but honey's great. Um, I would dig honey and I might dig locust dipped in honey. Uh, I'm up for anything, but uh, this was John and this is uh, what he did. In describing John the Baptist in Luke 7, 18 through 28, Jesus intimates that wealthy people cannot be prophets. For the wealthy you find in palaces, not in the wilderness. And he says, you went out to the wilderness looking for a prophet, not to a palace to hear from God. So really interesting that um, even kind of the modern day uh, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel claims to have a blessing from God. But Jesus in that passage intimates that wealthy people can't be prophets or are hard <laughs> hardly prophets um he didn't go out to the wilderness people didn't go out to the wilderness to hear john the baptist because he was in the wilderness they, they went out to him because he had the word of god 
and you don't go hear in the word of God in palaces. Uh, John had a miraculous birth, but he himself performed no miracles. First, his parents were advanced in age and had no hope of bearing children. It says in Luke 1 verse 7, Elizabeth was barren and they were both very old. God overcame her barrenness and he overcame their age. We can be sure that John's birth was miraculous because Zechariah doubted the angel's words according to their barrenness and according to their age. Another supernatural thing to happen to show that God was doing this was that Zechariah, John's father, was mute for nine months until the birth of John. He was struck mute by the angel Gabriel. We also see the supernatural means of his birth in that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That's in Luke 1.15. A result of that filling of the Spirit is seen when Elizabeth reports that John leaped for joy inside her womb at the hearing that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was near. That's in Luke 1.44. Even though Elijah had done many miracles in Israel, John would go forth in the power and the spirit of Elijah. But even John performed no recorded miracles, even though he was the greatest man to ever live. Elijah, on the other hand, prayed and it ceased to rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and it rained immediately. John never did any such awesome thing. Elijah was the one who prayed for fire to fall from heaven at Mount Carmel and fire fell down from heaven and burned up the altar and the sacrifice and the water that they had poured over it. I don't know if you remember that story. If you, ha if you haven't uh, heard that story before, go and read it. It's incredible. Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Such miracles John did not perform. But still, Jesus names him as the greatest man to have ever lived. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, John's father, and impressed upon him that the spirit and the power of Elijah lay not in the performing of miracles, but in the turning, quote unquote, of the hearts of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what Gabriel said to Zechariah, and that would be John's task. Luke 1, 26-27 is where Gabriel is recorded as saying that. During John's life in the womb, he leapt for joy at the recognition of Jesus, his cousin. I'm not sure about you, uh, but between cousins, there's a great love um, and also a healthy competition. I've had that. I've experienced that between my cousins. I don't know that if I were John, the older cousin of Jesus, I'd be so humble before my younger cousin as he said, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. You must baptize me, he said. He must become greater. He must increase and I must decrease. Those are the things John said about his younger cousin, Jesus. Interestingly though, the respect and admiration was reciprocal. Jesus said he was the greatest man who had ever lived. John the Baptist, the greatest man to ever live, never performed a single miracle. At least the scriptures never recorded a single miracle. 
His great task and mission was to preach repentance and baptize people into that repentance. In doing this, he was to prepare people for the coming Messiah. Ironically, he should have become a priest like his father. Zechariah was of the Levitical line, and so it follows that John should have been a priest and served in the temple like his father. Instead, he lived in the wilderness and dressed in camel's hair and ate locusts and honey. This was to show that he was, first of all, a plain and normal man, that he had denied the comforts of this world. Prophets historically wore rough garments to display their discomfort in this world. Uh, that's also seen in Zechariah 13, verse 4. These things also paralleled him with the previous prophet of Israel, Elijah. This showed that he was committed to the message because locusts and honey is not much by way of sustenance. It shows that John was sustained, as Jesus even said, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 4. These several aspects of what who John was show us that he was entirely taken up with spiritual things. Jesus later said, he came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. That's in Matthew 11:18. It seems that John took the priesthood to the most serious and ascetic level, denying all of the pleasures of this world. He rather preferred the pleasures of communion with God. For these reasons, Jesus named him the greatest man ever, not for any miracle he could or would have performed. The great commentator Matthew Henry reminds us to notice that John's task as prophet is the same task that all prophets were tasked with, which was and is to call men to repentance and reform, to turn the hearts of Israel back to the Lord their God. Prophecy is not the reading of an individual's future to say that God is blessing you or to do something like a cold reading or someone calling someone out of the crowd and telling them details about their lives, that is nowhere confirmed as the task of the prophet. And here we see the same thing. John's task is in no uncertain terms to call the people to repentance. And he did that with vivid depiction. He said the ax is at the root, ready to cut it down. He also called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. I mean, he used some colorful language. It'd be interesting to look at John's story from the eyes of a first century Jew. When Jews at that time went out to see John the Baptist, he was like a voice crying out in the wilderness. And it said in scripture in Matthew 3, 3, it said, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. He first warned the people of sin and righteousness, especially when he spoke to the Pharisees of their wickedness. They went out to him, and it was shocking. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and charged them strongly with the words, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Lest we think that Jesus' teaching was softer, Jesus likewise taught and applied the same metaphor to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34, and 22, 33. He said the same thing. Matthew recorded those words too. Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, gives Jesus as the answer to the coming and impending wrath when he writes, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Interesting how Paul reiterates those same words. Farmers in that time would have been very familiar with what a brood of vipers was. It was a family of snakes. Vipers are venomous, and essentially Jesus and John, in these cases, are calling the Pharisees sons of deadly serpents. These are stunning and shocking words. John and Jesus confronted the religious leaders of Israel on their religion. These were both bold denunciations and rebukes. Bolder still is that Jesus repeated it. The Pharisees were the law keepers and the promoters of, tra of the tradition in Israel. Over the years, they had become hypocritical, corrupt, legalistic, and created overbearing regulations on top of the law. The metaphor of the brood of vipers was applied to them by Jesus and John. To the Jew, the viper was seen as an evil creature. A viper's venom is deadly, and as a creature, it is very devious. They hide in places where they can't be detected until they strike with their deadly poison. For Jesus and John to call the Pharisees vipers was to associate them with the serpent in Genesis 3. John and Jesus were certainly implying that the Pharisees bore satanic qualities. Jesus clearly said later in, in John 8:44 that the devil was their father. John and Jesus were saying that they were deceitful, dangerous, and wicked. They were deceptive in their hypocrisy. Jesus also later called them blind leaders of the blind. Jesus also doesn't mince any words with the Pharisees, and he said their hearts were full of murder in John 8:37. Farmers would burn up the stubble in their fields to get the land ready for the next planting season. Often the fire would near a viper den and the snakes would slither away from the fire as if to escape from the wrath of the fire. However, they didn't always escape the coming wrath of the fires. John's words then were a clear picture to farmers of the time of how they would burn the stubble from their fields. They all would have known what he was talking about. He clearly associated this picture of judgment with the Pharisees' lack of repentance and their hope that their works righteousness would be enough to escape God's wrath. John didn't stop there, however. He further described to us that being sons of Abraham would not free the Pharisees from the coming wrath. He wasn't just talking to the Pharisees, he was talking to everyone. It must have made the first century Jew think about God's justice. John clearly illustrated how we could not escape the wrath of God without a just and righteous intercessor. John meant that the position and works were of little value in the sight of God. And John points that out with very strong language indeed. These words from John and Jesus were meant to make them aware of their own wickedness and call the people, not just the Pharisees, but all the people to repentance. In Luke's gospel, he also repeated John's words, the brood of vipers metaphor. However, Luke recorded that John was addressing the crowds, not just specifically the Pharisees. John's message of repentance belongs to the whole nation of Israel and us as well, not just the Pharisees. They all then asked John, what shall we do? Whereas the Pharisees showed no fruits in keeping with repentance, the people seemed to respond to the message of John and of Jesus. John presents an answer to sin. 
He gave us a picture of what repentance would produce. It would produce the opposite of what sin is. John painted such a wonderful picture of what justice actually looks like. We've actually seen that picture also painted in the Old Testament. A godly form of justice is laid out over and over again in the Old Testament. As farmers, God gave the regulations of gleaning and taking care of the poor in the year of Jubilee, among other things. These are justice regulations. It would be very difficult to hold a sinful attitude and unrighteousness in your heart and perform acts of justice at the same time. Or said another way, true repentance will produce godly desire for justice and righteousness to be done in every earthly relationship. John also records the word and message of repentance that the Baptist preached. He likewise records that the Baptist, John, was a path straightener. He was asked if he was the Messiah, Christ, or if he was a prophet, like the prophet Elijah. He denied it and merely claimed that he was only but a path straightener. John pointed people to Christ in his baptism. John claimed that his baptism of repentance was preparation for the baptism that the Christ would bring through the baptism of the Spirit. What is the baptism of the Spirit? It comes at repentance and faith in Jesus. This was what the Baptist was preparing the people for. Jesus' coming death, burial, and resurrection. These historical works of Jesus are the basis for salvation and baptism in the Spirit. John's baptism is a forerunner for the baptism of the Spirit. The fact that John actually asked those Israelites to be baptized was a remarkable demand. Baptism was a symbolic rite that proselytes had to go through to become Jewish. This must have only made John's baptism quite offensive. In baptizing Jews, he was implying that unless you were willing to take this baptism of repentance, you were not truly Jewish and could not count yourself as part of God's people. John, in calling Jews to the baptism of repentance, was telling them that they cannot rely on their Jewishness for salvation. In calling Jews to a baptism of repentance, John was telling them that they cannot rely on their Jewishness for salvation. They needed their hearts to change toward God. This also implied that the way was being made free that sins of Gentiles could also be forgiven and that repentance was also being extended to Gentiles was not only staying with the Jews. Here we heard that if Jewishness did not necessarily save, then being a Gentile does not condemn more than being a Jew. The issue that John the Baptist was bringing up here was sin, guilt, and repentance. It was a message of repentance for all men toward God. This is the one thing that prepares us and introduces us to, the, to God's ability to forgive sins. Luke's account further developed what the task of the coming Messiah will be. Luke quotes John as describing the coming work of the Messiah with, The winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Here the Baptist alluded to the previous metaphor. There are sons of God and there are sons of the viper. 
The ones will be gathered by the coming Messiah and into the storehouses of heaven, and the others will be thrown into the fires of hell. A clear New Testament theme when it comes to sin and judgment is when God forgives sin, he also removes wrath. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus removes and forgives sins, he also removes condemnation. But he not only removes the condemnation, he has taken the condemnation that we had earned and carries it on himself in the cup of wrath of suffering that he suffered on the cross. This is the great exchange. He took our wrath and we received his righteousness. We received his righteousness and he takes on our sin and judgment. Luke records the question also that John asks, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? This question may seem at first glance that it's an attack, but I would propose to you that it's actually a rhetorical question. This question might very well have been used by John as a real question to get the Israelites thinking, who did actually warn them to flee and seek forgiveness? If John could have answered his own question, he might have answered it and said, God, God warned you to flee the coming wrath. Jesus later describes how men come to faith and repentance when he said, no one can come to me unless the father draw him. So no sons of vipers can come to repentance except that the father draws them. And John might've been pointing that out. God is drawing you to flee the coming wrath. The answer to his own question might've been a rather clear self-answering question for John. However, in one gospel, he is talking to the Pharisees and they did not seem to respond to the message of repentance. Maybe it was a jab at them that they had not responded to the call of the father to respond to repentance, but rather they remained stiff necked and refused to repent in the face of such a clear call to repentance. Growing up as Jews in that time, Phariseeism was seen as the holiest standard of Jewish life and worship. But John the Baptist set this assumption on its head. Later, Jesus confirmed that John was right in his holy assessment of the Pharisees. Holiness cannot be conjured up from within ourselves, but must come from a righteous source. Justice, God's standard of justice, was not Phariseeism. Through John, he was calling us to prepare for the true justice bringer, Jesus himself. John's message was through and through repentance. Furthermore, he called the Pharisees to repentance and said, and don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. John furthermore pointed to Christ as the one for whom he was preparing the way. Later, he pointed his own disciples to follow Jesus. John the Baptist didn't pull any punches, as you can see here. He was not scared of any topic and went forward at the call of God to prophesy to kings and the religious leaders alike. I cannot think of one prophecy of his that was quote unquote positive. In the case of the modern prophetic movement that says we should only prophesy positive prophecies. Think of John the Baptist when he was arrested. First, he was arrested because he was not afraid to call sin, sin. He was simply thrown in jail for free speech. 
He criticized Herod for marrying his brother's wife and was thrown in jail for it. He called sin a sin. Remember John the Baptist, however, was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and made these prophecies also under the Spirit's direction. After a time in prison, probably time to think about his ministry, he sent some disciples of his to ask Jesus if he was the coming Messiah or if they should wait on another. Jesus confirmed not with a plain yes or no, but rather a look at the breaking in of the kingdom of God. Jesus was the king that was coming and certain signs accompanied him because he was God and he was bringing in the coming kingdom with him because he was the king. John maybe in this moment might have doubted that Jesus was the one, but we do see that he did proclaim him prophetically as the Lamb of God and the true Messiah in John 1, 29, and then also in verse 34. He might just have needed confirmation of that while he was struggling in prison to make sense of what was happening. And in the most senseless, unjustified act outside of the unjust crucifixion of Jesus, John the Baptist came to his end and was beheaded for a dance. Herod's wife's daughter danced for the king and his guest at a party, which is creepy and dirty enough in itself. So pleased was he that he promised to give her anything she desired. So coached by her mother to seek to keep John quiet, she asked for John's head on a platter. This has got to be the most bizarre and grotesque thing ever recorded. It just goes to show you that if you want to be a prophet of God, you might want to rethink that life goal. <laughs> or else you might just find your head on a platter. Just think about this. The greatest man to have ever lived was imprisoned for criticizing the immoral marriage of a king and the king's wife had him decapitated for his call for their repentance. This is the second biggest miscarriage of justice in human history. The greatest man to have ever lived is beheaded for a dance. Wow. What about John's story still speaks to us? His story and life message point to Jesus Christ, his younger cousin, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is an incredible example of humility. He always directed people to Jesus Christ and how he must become greater. He said, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Slaves carried sandals, even the lowliest of slaves. But John did not see himself worthy of being Christ's most menial slave. He saw himself not even worthy of being one of Jesus' lowest and most humble servants. He never became jealous of the crowds flocking to Jesus. He only said, he must increase and I must decrease. Herod may have senselessly killed John the Baptist, but he knew that he would be a king and priest in the kingdom of God forever. John has got to be the greatest example of that great old hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And we can also know that 
and trust in all circumstances that what John the baptizer lived before us. He lived a humble, menial life of seeming insignificance, never performed a miracle, never did anything great outside of Jordan. But God used him mightily. A movement's afoot in Christianity that would say that miracles are the evidence of the gospel's authenticity. Leaders like Bill Johnson would even go so far as to write in his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, that without miracles, there can never be a full revelation of Jesus. That's on page 204 to 205 in his book. Furthermore, Johnson indicates elsewhere in that book, on page 126, that if no miracles are displayed, then there cannot be a complete gospel proclamation. This certainly stands in opposition to the life of the greatest man to have ever lived. John the Baptist proclaimed the kingdom of God. He did it with power and authority and not even one single miracle to his name. He preached in an obscure place in the world, the wilderness of the Jordan River, ate a humble diet, preached probably only to a few thousand people, never performed a miracle, was arrested for speaking the truth about sin, and was senselessly beheaded for a dance. Did John not preach the complete gospel of Jesus Christ? Did he not give the full revelation of Jesus? Certainly. And Jesus confirmed him as the greatest man who's ever lived. Let us with new resolve preach the same message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that Jesus' cousin preached of him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We hope you've been blessed by this episode of Church Entrepreneurs just like I have. This material today just really, really spoke to me. John the Baptist is an incredible example for us. Hope it's blessed you. Thanks for listening to Church Entrepreneurs Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at www.richardpmore.net. And I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-P-R-E-N-E-U-R-S at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast or any comments or questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time. Take care.